Uh, guys, thank you. Great way to start off our uh, Advent season. We will be pausing our series on a haunted faith and over the next four weeks be uh, considering the different themes that we have uh, for the Advent season beginning today with, as Evan mentioned, uh, the, the theme of hope that is to be the prevailing uh, faith characteristic of us as a people of God. And so in keeping with that, I want us to look today at Jeremiah chapter 32. As you're opening your Bibles there, let me also say a word of welcome to those of you who are our guests today, whether in person or online. And we do hope and pray and anticipate that as God's Spirit stirs in your hearts through the songs, the prayers, the Word of God as it's proclaimed that uh, if He is calling you to faith, perhaps, to become a follower of Christ or to become a part of a church family as a follower of Christ, we would love to be able to get in touch with you and pray with you and counsel with you about uh, maybe what God is doing in your life. So we do hope that you would text FL Respond to that number that is provided, 833-571-3475. Literary scholar uh, Nicholas Dames wrote a not very interesting book entitled Chapters. Yes, a book on chapters. The subtitle of that text is A Segmented History from Antiquity to the 21st Century. He did an in-depth 2,000-year study on uh, the evolution of chapters as a literary device in the books that we read today, something that we take for granted, the presence of, of chapters. But in one of the excerpts that I read, uh, he, he made this observation, observation about the significant of, significance of chapters. They are significant in that they create the sensation of time in history. That is, that there is an additional time, the chapters remind you that there is an additional time that is coming uh, before the present time in which you find yourself in the midst of this story. When I came across that book, it uh, reminded me immediately of this season in which we find ourselves, the season of Advent, because this is a chapter in time, this is a break in the rhythms of the calendar. It's a time when we pause and we reflect upon what God has done, what God is, what God is doing now, and what God will do in the future. It's a remembrance of an advent 2,000 years ago, the coming of the anticipated Christ, and an advent that is to come, the coming of Christ. And so it is for us, the people of God, it is a chapter, it is a, a time, it is a break in this, in this rich narrative that is the story of God's salvation history. It's a hope that is ours, that is foretold by all of the prophets. The prophets, each one, speak to a people that, that are in times of difficulty, most often in times of, of exile. And it was in those chapters, those seasons of life, where the prophets were called by God and they challenged the people of God, they encouraged the people of God, they inspired the people of God to, to stay the course. Don't give up. Their messages drive us. They compel us. They motivate us all the more. And nowhere is this language of hope more evident than in the little word, behold. And that's what I speak to this morning, beholding hope. 
That little word appears some 1,500 times. The word behold appears some 1,500 times in Scripture. 380 times of those 1,500 is found in the writings of the prophets. And out of all the prophets, major and minor, Jeremiah is the one who uses it most often, 130 times. Jeremiah utilizes this little word, behold, to talk about the hope of the future that is ours as the people of God. That word, behold, if you were to just to walk through Jeremiah in its entirety, it becomes, it becomes the springboard, if you will. It becomes the catapult that launches us into an understanding of the hope that is ours as a people of God. Now the message that he spoke is a message that is no less relevant for us today. And if we are to truly appreciate the words of hope that Jeremiah is offering through this, through this little word, behold, uh, this little word, behold, we, we really need to understand the connection between the culture then and the culture now, bridging that cultural gap between the audience to whom Jeremiah is writing and describing and the world in which we live today. The similarities are striking. The geopolitical picture of that day and time, we're talking about the late 6th century B.C., the geopolitical reality of that day, the global force in world affairs was the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire was at the apex of its, of its power and influence in the world under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And because of the expansionist policies of Nebuchadnezzar and the militaristic uh, movements westward that were prevalent under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and what would eventually, uh, expansionist ideals that would move eventually into Judah some three times in Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem, and even the leveling of the temple, we realize that the people of God we're living in a time of tremendous torment. Now, as was the strategy of Nebuchadnezzar whenever they would occupy a new land, his strategic approach was to deport all the leaders. All visible leadership, all known leadership of that particular people group, they were, they were deported. And anyone of socioeconomic influence that, that could fund or organize any kind of resistance movement, they were deported as well. And it was, it was an event, when this took place, this was, an event, this was an event of cataclysmic proportion within the history of Israel. It was a cultural upheaval. It was a theological, a theological nightmare. Now you think about it. Whether you're talking about Babylonian captivity or you're talking about being held captive by the despair of this present world. There is within this society today, in our culture today, there is this undercurrent of despair. There is this undercurrent of restlessness. There is this sense in our culture that everything that had once offered stability, a sense of rootedness, 
the familiar structures of our lives and our routines, that, that all of them are in turmoil. It is, in fact, for us today, as it was for the Israelites then. It is a time of theological and cultural crisis. And when all of life has been upended, it's more than just being displaced geographically, but when everything you have known is in turmoil, has been leveled, in times of theological and cultural crisis, it demands an explanation. And within this exile experience, there is this remnant, and it's always a remnant, that continues to perpetuate the witness and the presence of God in the world and his desires and his sovereign purposes for his people. And along with Jeremiah, there is this remnant that seeks to offer an explanation for this theological and cultural crisis. They would ask the prophet, is there truly hope? And the message of the prophet, Jeremiah, and this remnant of people of, yes, there is hope. And it's built upon this little word, behold. And probably the most redundant recurring phrase in Jeremiah's writings in the utilization of that word behold is behold a day is coming. What is, isn't, will not always be. This season, this chapter will give way to another chapter. Behold, a day is coming. And that is what is to characterize us as a people of faith in a world that despairs. It's the hope and the conviction that more is coming. That there is more to come in the unfolding of God's sovereign purposes. Now here's where something switched for me. In my reading of this over the past few weeks in the anticipation of, of Advent. Knowing that we are a people that have been called by God. That the rootedness of our faith is this hope for the future, beholding what God, yes, what God has done, but much more so what God is going to do. I've been asking this question. It's a question I'm asking of myself. It's a question that you need to ask of yourself as a follower of Christ. If I'm to behold with faith, confidence, and trust. What God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. How is the world around me beholding my hope? How is my world around me on a daily basis? What is the world beholding in me? By my words, by my actions, by my attitudes, these are questions we need to ask of ourselves. By our words, actions, attitudes, is the world beholding hope in me? Or do I look and sound like 
every other despairing soul that is out there? It's a question we must all answer. And so I think it raises another question. How do we, how do we behold hope? How do we reflect hope in a way that the world can see it? Where they can recognize that we are a people of hope. That we are clinging to something that is, that is, that is to be. Well, it's, I just want to borrow from Jeremiah's writings here in verse 2. And I would say the first way that we behold hope to the world is through faithful proclamation. So you're, you're, a, you're no less a proclaimer of the faith than, I, than am I. We proclaim our faith, we proclaim our beliefs by, by the life that we live, the, by the life that the world sees in us, by the words that, that we speak. Says the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was imprisoned in the courtyard of the of the guard which was at the house of the king of Judah because, and here's the reason, listen, this is the reason that God's prophet Jeremiah was imprisoned because Zedekiah the king of Judah had imprisoned him saying, why do you prophesy saying this is what the Lord says, behold, I'm going to hand this city over to the king of Babylon and he will take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but he will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon, and he will speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. Then he will take Zedekiah to Babylon, and, and he will be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against these Chaldeans, you will not succeed. Jeremiah is imprisoned. Because the king and the people don't like his message. Now you and I today, as did the Jewish people in Jesus' day, um, they've, they've held Jeremiah, like all the prophets, in very high esteem, very high regard. But not, not in that day and time. Well, they despised Jeremiah. It's because he spoke the truth. It's because he said the things they, they did not want to hear. He spoke a message that challenged them. They, he spoke a message that, that threatened them. He wasn't saying the things that, that pleased them and, and made them feel comfortable, but Jeremiah looked at things as they were. Jeremiah saw the approaching Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and he knew they couldn't win. The Lord had prophesied through him. He knew they weren't going to, to win. So, so Jeremiah, his counsel is, let's lay down arms. This is what the Chaldeans are going to do, what they come in and do. That This isn't going to thwart the sovereign purposes of God. Let's just lay down our arms, and in so doing, perhaps we can spare the city of Jerusalem and the temple for another day. Now, there's a lesson here for us church that as we are discerning the word of God and we listen to many voices this day and time with the popularity of of podcasts we have multiple voices speaking into and we, and we have to listen with a discerning ear who is a true prophet and who's a false prophet a false prophet will 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 preach a message that that you find agreeable they'll preach a message that doesn't challenge you they're going to preach a message that, uh, that you can have your best life now. 
false prophet is going to tell you everything that you want to hear that is pleasing to the ear. But a true prophet like Jeremiah, there's no compromise. There's no accommodation that is made. And a true prophet, listen, church, and that, that is drawn by personalities, especially in the Western church today, where the majority of people are drawn to popular, to the power of personalities. Listen, true prophets are not bestsellers. True prophets are not popular. And it's because they are unwavering and holding forth the narrow way that leads to light. And they do not preach the broad way that is comfortable and easy, but ultimately leads to destruction. So you and I need to recognize, and we have to be, we have to be advocates for God's honor, for the integrity of God's word. Because it's only as you and I have the integrity, it's only as you and I are truthful in speaking the truth of God's word, it's only as you and I are truthful in holding forth the principles and precepts of God's word, it's only as we are consistent in doing that, that those with whom we cross paths on a daily basis have an opportunity and have the best chance of making choices and decisions about the kind of life they are going to pursue and the nature of their relationship with God. We do no one of any value by sugarcoating eternal truth. Oftentimes, and I've used it with you before, I use the analogy and the illustration of, 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 of a bottle of strychnine. If I have a bottle of strychnine, I, I can go and, and I can cover up that, those cross skull and crossbones and the bold print poison on the bottom of that bottle of strychnine. And I can make up a label that says essence of peppermint. And I can put it on that bottle of strychnine, essence of peppermint. But you know what? If you drink it, you're still going to die. And it's the same way with sin and lives that are lived with intentional disobedience to the things of God. We can try to sugarcoat sin. We can try to say, you know, sin's just not a big deal like it, like it used to be. You know, I, listen, just, just live the life you want to live. You know, everybody's doing it. And we can continue to compromise the boundaries of God's design because everybody's doing it. But you know what? Disobedience and sin, it still kills you. No matter how you dress it up, no matter how you try to sugarcoat it. So the best hope that the world can behold in us is one that proclaims faithfully the Word of God. There's another way that we can behold hope to the world, and that's through our business transactions. And I'm going to read this rather lengthy section, section here beginning in verse 16, but I want you to listen to the detail of what takes place here. Verse 6, and Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, buy for, your, buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then my uncle's son, Hanamel, came to me in the courtyard of the guard in accordance with the word of God and said to me, Buy my field, please, that is at Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew 
Jeremiah says, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field, which was in Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed and I sealed the deed. Look at the length and the detail that he's going to. And I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, in the sight of all the Jews who were sitting in the courtyard of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their sight, saying, this is what the Lord of armies and the God of Israel says, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthen jar so that they may last a long time. For this is what the Lord of the armies, the God of Israel says, houses and fields and vineyards will again be purchased in this land. I absolutely love this. I love what Jeremiah did in this context because he understands, and the reason I love this is because Jeremiah here understands the power and influence of what others see him doing. He understands the power and the influence of what others see him do. So he goes to great length. You think, why would you, your land is under siege. The Chaldeans are marching upon this land. Uh, They've already seized the land. Why are you going through the motions of buying land that will no longer be, that will be in the hand of the Chaldeans? It's because what Jeremiah the prophet wanted the people to see in him. I want you to see my hope. I want you to see my continuing trust and confidence in God that his sovereign purposes for this land and this people will not be denied regardless of what's happening right now. Jeremiah knew the nature of earthly kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar, he'll come and go. The Babylonian empire will give way to another empire, but the purposes of God will not be thwarted. And that is the kind of hope, Jeremiah says, going to great lengths in detail. This is what I want them to see in me. You see, church, this is where your most powerful witness is accomplished, not in here. Not in here. Your faith and your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is best made evident, not in here. If, the, if this is the only thing in here that separates you from your co-workers, from your classmates. It's the only difference between your life and their life is that you're here right now and they're not. That's not much difference. The most effective place, the most powerful, influential place, your faith is exhibited and lived out. Your hope and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is most effectively done in the transactions of everyday life. In the human affairs of everyday life. The intersections of your daily activity. This is why Jeremiah would even say to those in exile, listen, plant gardens, build homes, let your children marry. Let this pagan people around you, let them see faith in action. Let them see your hope. Let them see faith where your feet are right now. Listen, for a a generation that doesn't like work, And corporate America is struggling, just trying to find people who want to work. 
As a child of God, as a follower of Christ, never diminish work. Never diminish the value of work as your platform for exhibiting a work ethic that is generated by your faith and your hope in the future. Listen, that's why the scripture, the wisdom writer would oftentimes use the analogy of an ant, the diligence of an ant in how we are to approach our work each day. You know what Paul said to those that wanted to diminish work, the insignificance of work? Oh, we're going to be more spiritual and we're just going to go to a mountain hideaway and wait on the return of, of Christ. You know, what, you know what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10? He said, listen, they don't work, they don't eat. Work has practical value, but work also has spiritual value when we use it as a platform to show people how faith informs life and even our work ethic. What is your world? What are your coworkers? What are your classmates? Is that what they're seeing in you? Is that what they are beholding in you? The third way that we bear evidence and bear testimony to the hope that is in us, and I certainly appreciate this, is through our failed expectations. Well, it's depicted there in verses 16 through 35. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but it's a, it's a, it's a, a rather lengthy recounting of the favor of God upon his people. God's favor and God's provision of what he has bestowed upon his people, the blessings that he has given to his people, only to see them fail to live up to expectations. Only to see them embrace lives of, of self-rule and, and willful disobedience. For instance, it's described, notice in verse 23, they came in talking about the possession of, of the land they came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did not do anything that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster happen to them. It goes further in verses 31 through 35. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath since the day they built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from my sight. Because of all the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned their back to me and not their face, though I taught them teaching again and again, they would not listen to accept discipline. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They built the high place of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnaman to make their sons and their daughters pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to mislead Judah to sin. And so it's the failed expectations of a people that have been abundantly and richly blessed. And there's always this call of, of the prophets, and if you study the prophets, minor and major, you'll find that, that there's a redundancy to their, to their message. If you read through the entirety of the prophets, every one of them say the same thing. And first, they, 
foremost and exclusively, they were, they were preaching to the people of God, never to the world. You never hear prophets talking about how bad the world is. You know, Peter said, let judgment begin in the house of God. It is the church, it is the, it is the body of Christ, it is the people of God that has the burden of Christian living. It's not the world. And so the prophets always spoke to the people of God that you have the burden of godly living. You know, God has expectations of how we are to look, how we are to live our lives, how we are to order and arrange our lives because we're a called out people. And God has this expectation, now you must repent because you're disobedient. Of course, the cycle is they're called to repentance. They do not repent. The judgment of God comes against them. But listen, prophets are never prophets after the fact. You never find a biblical prophet, not modern prophets. This is what modern prophets do to get cheap applause. But true biblical prophets, they never wag a finger after the fact and said, I told you so. The message, after having attempted to call them to repentance, God's people to repentance, when the judgment comes against them, the prophet always says, now then, there's hope. The message is always redemptive. It's always redeeming. It is always a seeking to reclaim that which God desires to renew. And so I'm grateful that all of our failures, even in Scripture, those great saints, that all of their warts and blemishes are revealed. And I, I think it's of benefit for us and for those that we have relationships with out in the world, I think it's good that they're aware of our failures and our shortcomings because when they are made note of here and we see this cycle over and over and over again in Scripture, I think maybe we'll be that first generation. Maybe we'll be the first generation to break the cycle. That because we know the resurrected Christ, because we are prompted and empowered by, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will, we will stay on track and we will, not, we will not be distracted. We will not be pulled away by the allures of Babylon, by the world. We'll choose not to just settle there, but maybe we'll be the remnant. But there's a second benefit that is here in and that is when the world is aware of our failed expectations, when the world is aware of our shortcomings. I think then they see the bountiful mercies of God. Realizing that, that we as children of God, we're just products of his bountiful mercy and grace. And that it's a bountiful mercy and grace that far exceeds the, the failures of our past and our present. That we don't claim to be perfect. We don't claim to be self-righteous. We are a product of God's grace. That it's not about the failures of our past, but it's a, about being a part of the redemptive purposes of God that are fashioning us to be appropriate and equipped for the new heaven and the new earth, this great salvation that God is accomplishing. That's what the world, that's the kind of hope they need to see in us. And then finally, they need to see through us, they need to see hope through fulfilled promises 
They need to see hope through fulfilled promises. And I'm speaking to the the fulfilled promises of God. Now, I'm not going to read, again, this lengthy section through verses 36 through 44. But what I will highlight for you is that in these nine verses, in these nine verses, 16 times, 16 times, the first person personal pronoun, I, is used by God to describe the lengths and effort that he is going to to fulfill his covenant promises. And nowhere is it better depicted than here in verse 40 and 41. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their heart so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. I love that idiom, with all of my heart and soul. This is what I'm going to do. Now those words are used elsewhere in Scripture, heart and soul, but this is the only place in Scripture where heart and soul are used to describe what God is doing and what God is going to do. And heart and soul captures the totality of his being, the totality of his person. All that I am, all that I, uh, all that I possess is going into the fulfillment of these covenant promises. The promises that are made To Abraham, the promises of of occupation, the promise that ultimately, the covenant that ultimately will be fulfilled and has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Now maybe what we need is an appreciation of this covenant. It's unprecedented. When you talk about ancient covenants or treaties, whether ancient or modern, there's a uniqueness to the covenant that God has established with his created order. We're saying the, the norm of covenants, the norm of treaties, is that, is that the, the, the lesser vassal gives themselves to the greater vassal. That we understand. But this particular, what is called a suzerainty covenant, the suzerainty covenant, it is of a type that is, that is very unique because the greater vassal, God, gives himself over to the lesser vassal, you and me. And to borrow from anthropomorphic human-like qualities, God says, I am pouring my heart and my soul, the totality of my being, into making sure that this is fulfilled. You see, our, our, our language of hope, it's not like the world. It's not wishful thinking, nor is ours a, a hope that, that is based upon the past, though that is significant. It's not based on what God is doing now, but it's based upon the conviction. Therein lies the difference of our Christian hope. It is a conviction. It is not wishful thinking. It is a conviction regarding what to come. 
And so when you and I, when we live with this conviction of hope regarding the future that God has in store for us, in so doing and by so living, we become a part of a remnant, a remnant of God used by God that the world might see in us a hope for tomorrow. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we so often find ourselves caught up in the rhetoric of the day, a rhetoric and a language that is negative and pessimistic, despairing, lamenting, thinking only about the way things used to be. Father, I pray that we, as your people, that we might be a distinctive kind of voice and presence in our world. That in our daily transactions, our daily interactions and intersections in the human affairs of life, I pray that our deeds and our actions and our attitudes and our words might reflect a conviction of hope. And that as we live it out, that the world might see it in us and they might be drawn unto you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And as we stand this morning to be dismissed, we are dismissed with the blessings of Paul to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God bless you. Go in peace.